Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO, and today we are back in the podcast studio and we are re-airing a very special episode that occurred this year with a friend of Project Purple, Jules Jeffers, or AKA The Big Code. Sadly, as we all know, there's a reality with this disease and recently Jules lost his fight to pancreatic cancer. Our thoughts and prayers go to his family, his wife, Allie, his parents, and his child. At a young age of 34 years old, Jules fought this cancer unlike many. In his honor, we want to re-air his episode that we had earlier this year and you can hear just the positive and inspirational attitude that Jules possessed. Thank you for listening. And in honor of Jules, here is his episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today I am back in the studio, long distance here, video call with a new friend, someone that I met via social media, coming in from Brisbane, Australia, Jules Jeffress, AKA JJ, that we just named each yeah. other. Jules, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm really well, thanks. Yeah, really, really good. How about you? Doing great. It's a little early here in the states. Uh, I I got a mix. I got mixed up with the time. Uh, apologize that, uh, but uh, doing really well. Uh, Want to thank you for coming on the podcast, Jules. I mentioned this in the past. Yeah, my pleasure. Social media is so fascinating to me. The power of being able to raise awareness for what we do and connecting with survivors, and. 100% disclosure. Um, I think we, uh, it was either before or right after I had talked to uh, a fellow Australian, uh, a friend of yours, I believe, Helen McGregor, yeah, Helen, who was, yep. who was on our podcast. And um, she had may have mentioned it as well. And um, I connected, I saw your page, um, which we're going to talk about in a second. We connected. And then I was like, hey, would you love to come on? I'd love to have you on the podcast. You agreed to it. So we made this happen. So uh, it's awesome to have you here on the podcast from, as, as I guess some people call it across the pond, but I think to get to Australia, it depends if you're going from the, it's a big pond. It's a big pond. So it's uh, it's pretty far <laughs> away. Uh, I know when we talk to our friends in the UK, we always say, oh, across the pond and, and that Atlantic yeah. Ocean's a big, a big pond as well. So that, that's kind of a, a, a weird uh, phrase, I guess that people use. <laughs> But um, what we always do for our guests here on the Project Purple Podcast, and we have a pretty vast audience, and we've had survivors, clinicians, participants on our podcast, but what we always do to kick the things off here on the show is give our guests an opportunity to share their story 
And as I always tell our guests, you can go as far back, uh, you can stay as high level as you want, the choice is yours, and then we go from there. So with that, Jules, the mic is yours. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much. Um, So uh, my story starts back in early 2017. So uh, a few years ago now, I was a a pretty normal, how old was I at that point? 31-year-old. And I'd just been to... Uh, a friend's wedding, a good friend's wedding. Had a good time at the wedding. Um, drank too much alcohol, as you do. Had probably too much of a good time. Woke up, woke up the next day with a with a pretty uh, pretty rubbish hangover, which which again, you know, is pretty normal for for anyone, particularly uh, someone in their early thirties. Um, what was what was a bit different about that was that the hangover didn't really go away um, over the next few days, and I had a, a sort of a bad pain in my lower back and side, um, you know, even a couple of days later. So I knew that wasn't normal. Like it was sort of bad enough to be waking me up in the, in the middle of the night. It felt like a sort of stabbing pain in my side and lower back. So I went along to the doctor and just the GP and my GP, it wasn't my normal GP. It was a, because it's, you know, I don't know what it's like over in the States, but it's, uh, it's if you find a good GP, it's often hard to, to see them straight away, which is yeah. part of the problem. But um, anyway, um and this GP sort of said, "Oh, you know, you'll be right, mate. Take some, take some antacid. You know, you just you just had too much to drink, and your stomach's sort of struggling, which I think is probably fair enough for sort of the age I was. But um, as that week went on, I, I still didn't get any better, and I managed to see to get in and see my my normal GP, and he sent me for blood tests. So that was on like a Friday, um, and then the next day on the Saturday, so I was actually on the Saturday morning, I was just popping in to get my literally popping in to get my blood tests." I was on the way to um, – I just started uh, being involved with my local rugby club again, so I was, I was managing a rugby team. I was on my way to there to the game. I just thought, pop in and get these test results and sort of see what's going on and then continue on. And I was sitting in the doctor's room. This is the third different doctor at this point. This was, it was the weekend, so the normal doctors weren't working. And um, she's going through my blood test results and saying, oh, yeah, that's all fine. That's all fine. Oh, oh, that's not good. And I was like, what? And she's like, oh, how, uh, how do you feel about going to emergency? And I was like, well, if you tell me I need to go to emergency, I'll go to emergency. And so my um, my, my lipase levels were high. So not super high, mm. but, you know, quite high. And obviously at the time I had no idea what that meant. But, um, you know, that's one of the... Um, one of the enzymes is created by the pancreas. So when that's when that's up in your bloodstream, that's sort of a sign that something's going wrong, wrong with your pancreas. So I went off to um, to the emergency department at the local hospital, um, and that's sort of you know again sort of here that's like a, you know like a one stop shop where you can get scans and all that sort of stuff really quickly. Particularly on a weekend, that you don't have a lot of options to go like a private scan or place or whatever. So um, was in a, in the emergency and had the scan done, and doctor came out and said, "Look, you've got." Uh, You've got a mildly inflamed pancreas. You know, sort of your, pan- you know, your pancreas is a bit angry. Um, referred you to a gastroenterologist, you know, to see to see this week. You know, um, on you know, Monday or Tuesday, or whatever. But you know, you'll, you'll be all right, you'll be right. Take some painkillers, whatever. And I really wasn't feeling too bad at this point. Like I'd sort of i started to feel a bit better. Um, so I was thinking, okay, well, that's that's a bit strange. Um, and sort of went, you know, but went back about my daily business. That week went and saw uh, the gastroenterologist, and uh, he was like, "You know, look, this is this is pretty pretty odd for someone in their early thirties to have, you know, this sort of reaction. It means you've got you've got pancreatitis, 
Um, and it's it's probably from that, you know, one binge drinking event at the wedding. Mm. Um, because of the lack of the lack of any other obvious things. Um, but it's uh it's pretty it's pretty odd for someone your age to get that. Um, but let's sort of keep an eye on it. Um, we'll send you for another scan. And I can't remember at that point, maybe sent me for a different scan or something, but there wasn't much showing up. But he said, let's get another scan in a couple of months' time. Um, and, that, and, you know, to be honest, the worst news he told me at that point was, and you can't drink and you might never be able to drink much again. <laughs> and that was, you know, it's sort of like, what? Are you, you know, are you serious? Um, and that was sort of, that, that was, that was the, the biggest challenge in terms of processing any, any concerns at that point. Um, so, uh, anyway, sort of at that point, sort of went, went back to daily life, but I wasn't, I wasn't well, like I'd, you know, I'd sort of still get stomach pains sort of at the top of my stomach. I'd still get those pains in my lower back. I'd sort of, I had to adjust my diet pretty severely. So I sort of, I'd, I really had to eat much smaller meals or if I had large meals, I'd, I'd be in pain. Um, if I ate meals that were too fatty, I'd be in pain, all that, all that sort of stuff. Um, but again, this was sort of consistent with having pancreatitis, which is just an inflamed pancreas. And um, given there was nothing, given there was nothing showing up on the on the on the scan or anything, that was what we sort of went along with. Um, and then, so I had another scan in um, a couple of months later, and that showed um, nothing much more. To be honest, it showed that I think the, the report on the scan was something like consistent with resolving pancreatitis. And so the gastroenterologist was like, well, you know, that's probably true, but um, this is all a bit strange. Let's, let's keep an eye on this. And at that point too, I remember there were a couple of like sort of marks on the, in the pancreas. And he was like, that's, you know, probably scarring. Um, you know, you know, I, I think he even said it's probably not cancer. It's definitely not cancer. or something along those lines. Um, but it was sort of like, you know, that, you know, this is all consistent with resolving pancreatitis, but, you know, let's keep an eye on it basically. Um, and at that point, this is the middle of the year. At that point, we were about to go traveling overseas to Europe to, to a good friend's wedding. Um, and after that, traveling through French wine country. So I was like, Hey, doc, can I, can I have a few drinks? Again, you know, fitting with my main concerns at the time. And he was like, Nope. <laughs> yeah. Basically, alcohol and the pancreas are, you know, don't get on at all. Yeah. And you're still, you're still not, um, you're still not healthy, so now you need to stay away from from that. So I was like, again, this was like, you know, oh my god, that was the worst news again. You know, more than anything was like, oh god, I can't drink, which is so funny thinking thinking now how how much your life changes and your priorities and perspectives change. But anyway, um, went away overseas, had a good time, managed to have a good time drinking, you know, orange juice and lemonade, and you know, watching other people other people drink at the wedding and yeah. <laughs> watching watching my wife, my wife and my my best friends sort of you know sample all of all lovely French wine all through Loire Valley and Bordeaux and all that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, again, feeling better, but not well, not well. I do sort of how I describe myself. And anyway, came back, this is at the end of 2017 now. Um, I came back and um, back into, you know, back to work, back into normal life and had my third CT scan for that, for the year. Um, again, just the normal one that my gastroenterologist had scheduled to check in. And again, I think it was kind of, I think, this is on like you know middle of the middle of the week. It was like a Wednesday or a Thursday, and I, I had an appointment to see him. I think the scan was on the Wednesday, and had an appointment to see him on a Thursday or something like that. Had the scan on Wednesday morning and went to work, and then missed a call from him on Wednesday afternoon. And you know the voicemail was, "Can you give me a call back as soon as possible?" 
And it was like, oh, that's, you know, that's odd. You know, I'm seeing him tomorrow. Um, and why, you know, why, why is he ringing me now? That's, it's not going to be, he's not ringing me with good news. So I rang him back and he was like, look, can you, can you come in now? Can you come in and see me this afternoon? You know, we need to talk about the scan result that you've had this morning. So I sort of, you know, dropped everything and got on a train and went, went to see him. And he said, look, there's some spots on your liver that weren't there three months ago in the scan that we had last time. Um, and he said, look, we don't know what it is. It could be a number of things. It could be an infection. Um, but you're healthy, you know, you're not showing any signs of infection. Um, I've got to tell you, it's it's most likely that it's cancer and it's come from the pancreas. But we need to, you know, we need to find out for sure. Um, so that really, uh, that news really came from, you know, totally out of the blue, um, sort of given the year that we had. And to me, uh, shows everything about why pancreatic cancer is so so deadly and so dangerous is that even when you're looking for it, you can't find it. You know, literally, they were, you know, I was having scans every three months to, to monitor to see what was going on. Um, and it was, you know, so we now know that I had it then, almost certainly, and that that, that was what was causing me to feel unwell and to, to, to give me, you know, inflamed pancreas, pancreatitis that year. Um, but we didn't find it until it spread to the liver. And, you know, that's why for so many people it's so... You know, the story is so awful and ends so quickly because, you know, by that time it's often just too late to do much. Um, luckily for me, um, which always feels funny, to, but I've, actually I think a lot about my good luck within obviously this bad luck situation. Good luck, so I ended up having a, you know, a biopsy. Um, they biopsied the liver to work out to work out what it was. They, they took a liver tumour out pretty quickly. And I've actually got a really rare form of pancreatic cancer. It's called acinar cell carcinoma. And it's something like 1% of all pancreatic cancers of this type. And normally in the medical world, you don't want to be rare, right? You want to be, you want yeah. to be, you want to be textbook. You want to be, yeah. we know we've seen this before. We know how to deal with it. Um, but but the, in, with pancreatic cancer, it's kind of a blessing in disguise. I've got one that's, that's rare, which they don't know much about it, but, but it, it seems to be not quite as aggressive as as the normal um, adenocarcinoma that, that that you hear about all the time, um, and um, it's so rare that, as I said, to one percent of all pancreatic cancers. That um, you know, when you Google it, you know, on page two of Google, you start to run out of information, which is not you don't don't you don't Google much these days, where you start to lose stuff after a couple of pages. And I'm on a, a Facebook group, which has been you know, we, you know we're talking about social the power of social media before. This Facebook group is, has been incredible for me with people with with asnar cell carcinoma and across the world. I think there's about twenty or thirty of us or something on this group, um, which is just phenomenal. And I think is probably the mo the, the, mo the biggest data set going around anywhere. I think <laughs> of, the, of the world of, of this group of people. So, um, so uh, that was my that was my 2017. Um, as a, so, yeah, sort of started off as a 31 year old, turned 30. 32 by the end of the year had yeah was diagnosed with, with pancreatic cancer um and then um so that was yeah i think that was november or october i think it was november 2017 uh and then so straight on to straight on to chemo uh did did eight, eight rounds of of fulforinox um which i think um that probably, probably a well well known chemo regime to sort of to people listening and to, and to you guys um pretty rough the um, you know, my oncologist said to me, "Look, 
you know, I still remember saying, well, chemo's, chemo's got a bad rap and rightfully so. But yeah, this one, this one's not too bad. Really, this one's not too bad. You'll be right. I was like, oh, okay. And then the first round put me in hospital for 10 days and I lost eight kilos or 10 kilos or something. Sickest I've ever been in my life. <laughs> so I think, I think sort of looking back on that now is kind of like his way of mentally preparing me for it, you know, sort of thinking, you know, you'll be, you'll be okay and sort of getting in a mindset of positivity rather than telling you this is going to be terrible and it being terrible. Um, so, you know, the power, of the, the power of the mind is important. So you start the eight rounds of Flafornox, and I know you were just saying that, you know, the doctor kind of mentally prepared you for that and not knowing. I want to back up just a bit here before we sure. move forward from the, the chemo regimen. At any point in time, and this comes up often, I mean, you're young, sounds like you're super active, you mentioned rugby, so I imagine were you playing rugby? So that again, being more active than probably the the normal Australian, possibly or yeah, I, I was I, I was I was like sort of coaching and managing at the time, but I was I was definitely the, the the funny thing is that I was probably the healthiest I'd been in one way at that time. Like I just run my first half marathon, I was running more than ever, and you know, in, in that intervening period between getting sick and being diagnosed, so I was certainly very active yeah so at any point in that time did you go out to the internet and do like some searching i know you mentioned you know post you know naturally your you, the power we talked before we started uh you know getting into the interview about how we met and then you mentioned you know social media and, and connecting with these people all around the world but yep. during this initial phase of just diagnoses and you know, clinical diagnostics that were going on. Did you go out to the internet and find out what, like you mentioned, like pancreatitis at 31 years old, that's pretty odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you mean, do you mean before I was actually, before we found out I had cancer? Yeah. Yeah, not, not really. And I think because I feel like I had, I had an answer, right? Like I yeah. sort of, I wasn't wondering what was wrong because they said, well, you've got pancreatitis and it came from this, you're unlucky, it came from this, you know, you know, this, this you know, drinking too much one night, you just had a bad reaction and it's caused this, this problem. So, you know, no, like no is the short answer. I, I didn't think anything more of it. I thought this is just something I've got to deal with now and get, and get through. Um, yeah, no, I, I really didn't. So it didn't even occur to me to start thinking that this could be something worse because I was told, it, you know, it, yeah, it, it's probably not. And this is, this is what's wrong with you, I guess. Yeah. It's just fascinating to me. I mean, being so young, um, you know, and, and, and I'm not advocating that everyone, uh, in their thirties should, should drink or, you know, I mean, I, I think culturally though, too, Jules, in fairness, I think, you know, different cultures around the world. I grew up in a, in a very authentic Italian, I mean, I'm Italian family. I'm first generation Italian. Yeah. So, you know, wine was yeah. something that was at the dinner table every night, you know, and, and yeah. when we would go to Italy and, and be with family and, you know, I remember being young, like 13 years old and, you know, being over there, he, you know, my cousins that were the same age were having glass of wine at the dinner table, you know, with their family. Yeah. It wasn't like kids were going yeah, out, yeah, you know, yeah. going to the liquor yeah, store, yeah. Or, you know, go to the supermarket, yeah. buying alcohol and then drinking it by themselves. That's not what we're advocating. But I think culturally, yeah. Yeah. you know, people grow up in certain parts of the world where it's, it's very accepting, you know, to, and it's very normal, I should say, to have wine or to have alcoholic beverages, um, 
you know, in consumption just as, as, uh, as part of their culture. So it's totally. really yeah. fascinating. Um, you know, you're just living this normal life to have that happen. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. And sort of, you know, I grew up, I sort of, it's really, just, you know, I'm sure, you know, Australians like, like a drink. Yeah. Um, you know anything about, you know anything about Australians and sort of, and I grew up, you know, in a, in a, as a rugby player in rugby culture. So drink, drinking a lot, right. And certainly yeah. drinking too much, too much, too often, definitely. <laughs> um, and who, I mean, who knows if any of that stuff led to this and I, I spend zero time thinking about why or what happened or, you know, the, the past like that. I spend all my time looking forward because uh, I don't see there's, there's any point in, in looking back like that. But, um, but you're right. Like it's kind of just normal. You know, it was just, I was just, was nothing I was doing was abnormal. Um, and this just happened bang. But, you know, I now know, like looking back, you know, yeah, as, as Helen said, when, when you spoke with her, you have all these sort of classic things. But this is the problem with, again, with pancreatic cancer is that all those symptoms can be so nonspecific. And so it's hard to work out what it might be. But even in my, I think my situation is a really good example, again, that we were, we were, they were looking for it. You know, I was seeing a doctor. I was getting scans yeah. every couple of months, you know, and it was, uh, you know, I don't know what, what, what more could have been done really to, you know, in the circumstances. And there's sort of a lot of the, a lot of the different doctors I've spoken to sort of said it's, you couldn't really have done anything different. I mean, maybe I could have had a, a PET scan. Maybe they could have biopsied the pancreas, but there's all sorts of reasons not to do those things. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, most clinicians um, won't go in and biopsy just for pancreatitis because it exactly it, it does the reverse effect. It actually inflames it more, from my understanding, exactly. from talking to many clinicians. Exactly right. Yeah, so that exactly that's not right. really advisable to do that. So exactly. So it's sort of you know there was an answer there, you know, and in the in the in the scheme of things, I was young. And this 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 had happened because of an event, and so I didn't even didn't even think to to go and and and. And look at what you know the symptoms for pancreatic cancer might be, or look at what else it might be. Yeah, because I was under medical medical care. So yeah, it's just one of those things. It's fascinating. So let's jump back into the treatment protocol. So yeah, after the diagnosis, the official diagnosis. Yep. You go for fluoronox. You do eight rounds. We know from having guests on the podcast, it's we like to call it the kitchen sink of chemotherapy treatment, especially with yep. pancreatic cancer. I mean, it is really toxic. Uh, most patients do not do well. I think we just had someone on our podcast. He actually went through 16 and then they it was, oh, yeah. he was doing it so well that they decided to give him like two more rounds, which is just well, so fascinating. So oh, man. some people do tolerate it well. I mean, that that's the fascinating thing with this disease. I think science across the world has not figured out why certain people do really well in fluoronox and other people just don't tolerate it whatsoever. Yeah, I get pe people are different, right, for all sorts of reasons. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, and so I, for, I mean, for me, yeah, that first round was brutal. It put me in, put me in hospital for ten days and lost heaps of weight and was, you know, certainly the sickest I've ever been. Um, but then I was able to recover from that and, and get back on it and do another another seven rounds, and that's when. And, and do really well. So I had, I had after, I think after three or four rounds, had a, had a, a scan that showed really good, a really good response. Um, and then, uh, we pushed on. Uh, and I think after eight rounds, we decided to, to stop. Um, because the, the, I think more than anything was to, 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 to keep, 
keep a bit up our sleeve for later on. Because I think sort of here they talk, I'm not sure about over there, but here they talk about 12. Well, my doctors anyway talk about 12 being kind of the magic number with Fosforinox. I don't, don't want to go much beyond 12 rounds because of the toxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so after eight rounds, and this is now early uh, 2018, um, yes, yeah, so I got through that pretty well, really, um, and moved on to an oral chemotherapy tablet called Cape Cytomine. Mm-hmm. And was on that for a few months, um, but that that didn't work. So after, I guess three months, sort of then going through now in the middle of 2018, had a scan again showing that there'd been a little bit of growth on the liver um, while I was on capecitabine. So at that point, at that point, we decided to have a look around at, at what else we could do. So my oncologist was really good. He was sort of um, because I was young and because I had this rare cancer. I guess he wasn't wasn't necessarily just following the textbook about this is you know this is what we'll do, this is how we apply this sort of thing. Let's take our time here. We've got a little bit of time. Let's work out what the, what the best approach is from here. Um, and the other thing that we'd done, which I sort of neglected to mention, um, which was kind of a bit by luck, one of my one of my friends who I'd known well a few years before, but sort of we hadn't hadn't kept closely in touch. Um, we got back in touch. Uh, around the time I was diagnosed with, with cancer because she was diagnosed with bowel cancer about the same time. Um, and she was actually on Fulforinox. So we did Fulforinox together, sort of going through it, which was amazing. I can't overstate uh, how amazing it was to go through that with someone and be able to share it with them and, and say, sort of, oh, what did you do when you were feeling like this? Or, you know, how, how, did, how did you respond to that? Or, you know, it was just... It was invaluable. Can, cannot overstate how important that was. Um, and she had suggested to me early on, oh, have you thought about, have you mentioned getting genetic testing done uh, of the tumour? And I had no idea what she was talking about, but I mentioned it to my oncologist and he was like, that's a really good idea. Um, and it's not, I know over there, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a much more standard approach over there. I think, for example, I think even, can can pay for some people over there to have it done. Yeah, so diagnosed, which is so now in the United States, actually in 2019, the recommendation was that uh, all pancreatic cancer patients have germline testing as they are yeah. diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. We do know here uh, that 10 percent of the cases are from a uh, genetic mutation, and there's been yeah. a lot of work uh, across the world in this space. But in particular, in some therapeutics recently that have come out, um, and there's been some very positive reports over the last year and a half about changing the treatment protocols, not completely, but tweaking them, adding certain medications. I think the FDA here in the United States just made a big announcement uh, within the last uh, month uh, of a new treatment that is designed specifically for these folks that have particular genetic mutations. And the treatment protocol and this new drug actually does really, really well. So they're seeing not only quality of life go up substantially, but also regression of the disease happening um, in in major segments of that population. Now, it's not, I I think we have to caution our our audience here. It's it's not a wonder drug for all, right? It's not the the silver bullet that eliminates the cancer, but it's in the right step, I guess, or the right direction that where we hope the rest of the field goes with therapeutics and with treatment protocols. But the genetics piece has become very, very big here in the United States and something that 
I think they were on this for a little while with the whole, uh, there was a big push about five years ago, Jules, with personalized medicine for all cancers yeah. and all diseases. Precision medicine, personalized yeah. medicine, just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, you know, in theory, like, right, you know, if you think about it, we all have a specific genetic makeup and, and that's passed exactly. on from our family lines. And, you know, if we could identify why people are getting sick from the genetic level, not just like grouping people as a whole as like, hey, you have cancer or you have breast cancer, or you have pancreatic yep. cancer, and here is the ABC treatment for that disease. But, you know, these people that have different genetic markings or, you know, react differently to drugs, you know, and tailor the medications for those genetics, which I think it originally was the idea. Uh, I know there's been some pushback on certain diseases and, and certain diseases has worked really well, you know, with, with uh, immunosuppressants and, and, you know, with yeah. immunotherapy here in the States. Um, but on other diseases, it has not worked very well. Um, and that's kind of the challenge, right? There's this push and pull um, in, this, in this world. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the times this comes down to money. Um, especially exactly. here in the States, yep. you know, it becomes very expensive for these uh, pharmaceutical companies to test these drugs and to have constant failures. I mean, immunotherapy has not worked, unfortunately, uh, for the vast majority in pancreatic cancer, like it has yes. worked yep. in other cancers. But the yep. genetics piece is really fascinating. And, and that's something that, I, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, when I did the podcast with Helen, also from Australia, genetics came up and, you know, for here, we've been talking about it for a little while. And, and naturally it is a requirement now that everyone get uh, testing if they are diagnosed, like it's, it's, they have to have that happen so that we know. Uh, but now, you know, there's been a big push here in the States also to get healthy patients genetic tested because we do know that again, 10% of uh, cases here in the States are from these genetic mutations that have been identified. Yep. But if we can identify this high risk population and follow those people, similar to you can like, stop, maybe stop them from getting it yeah, or, 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 get it, or get it early, early, similar to like what you yeah. went through. And that's what I, when you were telling that narrative of about, you know, you were seeing the GI specialist and you know every couple months and you know they were on top of this this is similar to what the thought process is not necessarily seeing someone um every three months but once a year here in the united states of potentially creating screening protocols for these high-risk populations and we do know that people you know pancreatitis is not uh something that should be taken for granted regardless of where you live if people are listening to the podcast that have that uh, because that is, we know scientifically, that is kind of a precursor to pancreatic cancer for some people, not everyone. Uh, but that is something that, you know, people should be in screening and monitoring programs so that they are being surveillanced or, you know, they've been followed so that potentially they can avoid, you know, the, the negative of, of what could happen. Yeah, so, it's, it's really interesting to me to compare, you know, the and I'll come back to I'll come back to my story in a second, but you know we've got such a fantastic health system here in Australia in terms of you know universal healthcare, yeah, um, and the ability for everyone to to get to go to the hospital and see a doctor um, and have it have it not have to worry about the cost. But then we're behind in you know, which which you say obviously is ahead of the states, but then yeah. we're behind in, from a technology point of view because you know it just makes makes sense for people with pancreatic cancer or the other, other sorts of challenging cancers, or really everyone with cancer, to have this genetic testing done because it, it, on two, on, in two ways, one, it's getting 
giving potentially opening up new pathways for treatment and two think about the data that it's the data bank that's being built from a, from a health from a public health point of view you know every single person you, you get even if that person doesn't have a new treatment pathway opened that's another piece of data adding to adding to the knowledge you know like and it's just so to me it's just a no-brainer i know there's a cost involved but um Anyway, that's a <laughs> yeah. I, I don't disagree we'll with you. We we'll talk about that in an entire podcast. Oh, absolutely, and we and we've done some podcasts with some genetic specialists, uh, both from you know genetic counselors to medical professionals. That that's all they do all day, and it's really fascinating. And I I, I do agree with you 120%. I mean, this is how we're going to beat these diseases, and whether it's pancreatic cancer or you know potentially autism you know, or any of these other illnesses that affect the, the world's populations. Um, genetics is a super important piece of that. So it shouldn't be overlooked. And, and clearly, you know, the more we know, the, the better we are in, you know, fighting these diseases and fighting illness and also coming up with cures. And, and so that's really the key to all this. So genetics is such an important piece. I wish we could do this, uh, you know, on a world level, you know, and, and clearly with yeah. You know, whether it's uh, capitalism or whether it's just, you know, systems and how the systems are built, it becomes really kind of a challenge. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, maybe one day we'll get to where there is like a world health, you know, initiative, which, you know, it's kind of like a blanket policy and, and you know, all countries kind of follow suit. But, you know, that that's wishful thinking. But uh, I, I'm glad to hear that, you know, in, in Australia now that is becoming more of a concern and it's exciting to see because I think there are some things to be learned both ends right from what you guys are doing yeah. in Australia and then what we're doing here in the United States that's right and look and it is it is happening here so just just recently um, the the government announced that the all all lung cancer patients will have genetic testing funded so so it is awesome. it is happening yeah so it's really it's really good and so for me though, i was lucky so again there's that word lucky in a, in, in an unlucky, unlucky yeah. situation um for my for my rare cancer that i was able to get uh a um there was a there's a medical research institute in sydney called the garvin institute and they were running a, a program for rare cancers where they where you could go and get your tumor genetically tested for free um so we submitted my my tumor to them um, and they came back and said, uh, you've got a mutation that in theory is targetable by a drug. So it's called an, an uh, EGFR or FGFR or I can't remember. I can't remember the exact acronym now. Um, so that was, that, that opened up a potential pathway for me, um, wow. which was, which was great. Um, and so sort of, yeah, looping back to where we got before sort of the middle of this is the middle of, uh, of 2018 now. And we're kind of looking around at, at what else, what else, what, what I could do next. So the, the, the done eight rounds of Fulthorinox had the oral chemotherapy cave side of me and that didn't work. Um, at, so we're looking around, is there a way of getting one of these targeted therapy, you know, these, these targeted therapy drugs that can target this genetic mutation. And I met a, another oncologist or one of my oncologist colleagues who runs clinical trials. Um, and he said, look, I haven't got one at the moment, but you know, I'll keep an eye out. There's a couple on the horizon, um, but I'll keep an eye out for you. Um, we sort of investigated maybe some drug companies that, that, that had that, this targeted therapy drug, but you know, just 
as you said before, you made a really good point. You know, they, they spend so much money on research and development. Hmm. They can't just give out, give out these drugs for free for people. Yeah. Um, and so even, even with the, um, you know, when they give you a, a discount, it's still, still astronomically expensive for something that might not, might not work. Um, and so at the same time, I was doing um, a bit of work with Pancare, who are the pancreatic cancer um, charity here in Australia. And so I'd sort of just reached out to them when I got diagnosed and they were, they were really helpful with information and support. Um, and I'd just been doing, so they, they're a small organization based out of Melbourne here mm-hmm. in Australia and they, had, they didn't have a presence up here in Brisbane where I am. And so I'd just done, you know, they, they had a, you know, a couple of functions up here and I went along on their behalf and that sort of stuff. Um, and they invited me down to their big uh, fundraiser in, in Melbourne at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, which is this incredible sports ground in Australia. Um, holds like 100,000 people where all that like cricket and, and Australian rules football is played. So I went down there and well, my wife, Ali, and I went down there for that and, and asked me to speak and tell my story. And just before I went down, I was talking to my oncologist and he said, make sure you talk about yourself a lot and put in some detail in there because you don't know who will be in the room. You know, all these people in the room, you never know who might be there who might be able to help and might know something. Um, so, you know, I, you know, put in some pretty irrelevant detail about say, having, saying I've got asthma cell carcinoma and these sorts of things. It didn't really, didn't really matter what I was, you know, to my story really. Um, and before I even, so I'd given, you know, get, sort of, you know, gave my story, spoke about myself and walking back to my seat. And before I'd even got to my seat, the founder of Pancare, who is a surgeon, a, a pancreatic and liver surgeon, came over to me and said, you know, sometimes with your cancer, we just operate, we just cut it all out. Let, let me know if I can help. Come and, you know, come and talk to me. And so I was like, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, and I had, had a bit of a chat to him and sort of pissed For me, surgery had never been an option because, you know, even though I said before, we weren't really following the textbook. You know, the textbook says once, you know, once the cancer spread, you don't operate, right? Yeah. Um, and so my oncologist's multidisciplinary team up here in Brisbane, no one would, he'd, he'd, he'd regularly sort of say, you know, we think about surgery here and they were all like, no, nah, you know, we won't, we won't do it. There's no point. It, you know, it's, it'll just come back or it's, you know, too high risk or whatever. So, Literally a couple of days later, my oncologist put me in touch with a pancreatic cancer expert that he'd found in a different uh, medical institution in Sydney. And I spoke to her and she said, find someone to cut it out. And these are the three surgeons who should do it in Australia. And he was one of them that I just met three days before. And it's just this ridiculous serendipitous situation and again talk about luck within a bad, a bad luck you know and and so I, I sort of i feel weird about it because on one hand i think that's so amazing you know, you know that's great for me how lucky but then on the other hand i think none of that is part of the health system working you know like none of that none of that is is the system working and and that's happening to me in in brisbane in a, in, a, in a you know one of Australia's biggest cities, what hope does someone have in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, in, a, in Australia, out in a regional country area, let alone one of our Aboriginal communities. You know, like there's no way those people have any chance of, of that happening. Um, so, uh, but anyway, um, just an incredible, yeah, an incredible, incredible, incredibly lucky situation. And so, um, my oncologist, I went back to my oncologist, and he said, 
let's do it. Like that's, you know, if you can cut it out, let's cut it out. If the surgeon thinks it's a good idea, let's do it. Um, and so the surgeon then looked at my, you know, had scans and all sort of stuff and he looked at it and he said, yeah, look, I can, I think I can do it. And so this is um, December 2018, fly down from Brisbane to Melbourne and um, go into hospital and have uh, – so I should have said the, the, the my tumor is, was in the tail of my pancreas. Mm-hmm. So I had a distal pancreatomy. So the tail of my pancreas cut out. I had my spleen and gallbladder removed as collateral damage. And then I had uh, three two thirds or three quarters of my liver removed. Um, and in intensive care for a couple of days and out of hospital within a week. And at my uh, my family came down and I had Christmas with my family and my wife, uh, so my mum and dad, my brother and my sister, at my friend, my friends vacated their house and we all had, you know, Christmas together <laughs> a couple of days after having all my insides removed. Um, so uh, that was sort of an amazing time to sort of look back on. Um, and then sort of, yeah, recovered from that and a couple of months later, so now we're in early 2019, back into a couple of rounds of Fulforinox. So I had four more, four more rounds of Fulforinox after that surgery. Um, and um, that, again, did the job. And after I had a scan, I think, in early 2018, after that, well, it must have been like April 2018, because it was after those four rounds of Fulforinox. Sorry, 2019. I'm getting my years confused. I always do this. Uh, this is early last, last year. Uh and the scan showed no evidence of disease. So I had, I was, I was clear for all intents and purposes after the surgery and, and four more rounds of Fulforinox. Um, and that was a, that was a pretty amazing feeling. I've still got that scan, some scan report somewhere with those words highlighted. Um, and that, so that was, yeah, that was, that was a pretty incredible journey up, up until that point. Um, and then I think I went back on Cape Cytomine again as sort of a maintenance or as sort of do it, have to have something sort of, you know, to continue treatment. Because even at that point, even though I said no evidence of disease, look, I wasn't naive, you know, like I wasn't living in a, in a bubble thinking that I was cured and free, you know, I thought, you know, in all likelihood, this is going to come back again at some point. Um, but you never know, right? You never know. And it's that, I think that, that hope is really important. And I've always had that, that hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, can't, can't again. Something else I can't overstate is the importance of hope and the importance of positivity. Um, but then, yeah, sort of a couple couple months later, it was the middle of last year, about about June 2019. So I started to feel a little unwell again, and um, started to get fevers. So I admitted to hospital with a fever and had a scan, and that showed there was a new spot on my liver and there was a new enlarged lymph node. So unfortunately, that that joy of no evidence of disease only lasted a couple of months, uh, and that was again, like as I said, wasn't naive, wasn't living in, living in a bubble, thinking it'd never come back. But that was still pretty, it was pretty gutting um, to have that happen so quickly as well. Um, so back on the back on the phone to to my surgeon in Melbourne, who, who at this point had become. Uh, I should I should give him a shout out, really, Doctor Murdad Nick Farjams. His name. He's an incredible, incredible human being, an incredible surgeon um, who has yeah fa- founded founded Australia's National Pancreatic Cancer Charity. For one, is an amazing thing, but 
also for the for the treatment he's given me. Um, and from day one, from that time I met him, you know, we talk about precision medicine and we talk about personalized medicine. Treated me as a person first and then worked back from there rather than this is what the book says, you know, or this is what, this is what my experience is or whatever. Always treated me, this is your situation and this, and this is what we're going to do about it. Um, and I think that's that's pretty incredible. In my experience, not all not all doctors are like that. In fact, not many, not many of them are. Um, and uh, he said at that point, I think I should operate again. I should cut out those new spots, and particularly because the lymph node was in in a, in a spot that was going to cause me problems. Mm. So I was back down to Melbourne again, back down to have <laughs> significant surgery. And even though it was just the lymph node and and one or two spots on my liver, it was actually much bigger surgery in a way. It was much more technical and it took much longer. Um, and the recovery was probably a little bit worse as well. Um, so, but again, having said that, I, I, look, I bounced back pretty well um, and came back to Brizzy and um, back meeting with my oncologist. And at that point, again, we thought, well, you know, what do we do? What do we do now? Um, and we decided. Just trying to think at that point what we actually decided to do. Um, so, what, Jules, yeah, I got a question. Go. I got a question here. So that yeah. second surgery, they yeah. go in and and clearly because and and for our audience listening at home, yep. you had a distal, which is a big surgery. Yep. Kind of. Whenever anything, I always say like when surgeons go in and they kind of mess around with the plumbing, which is you know what happens here, everything changes, right? So nothing is normal the way that it flows, the way the plumbing flows anymore. As you start to remove organs, even if it's a gallbladder, it's still it's still an organ, and yep. you know it has a function and it's no longer there. And you know, taking a piece of the pancreas and liver and all that, that's a, that's a big deal. And the plumbing does yep. change. So naturally going in for a second surgery, there's no roadmap, right? So you, you've created, the doctors created this new roadmap on how to get, you know, to where it needs to get to. It's not as uh, simple as, you know, the average human that hasn't had any of these issues before. So that second surgery, so they remove a lymph node and do they go and take the spots off the liver or did i mean yeah that had to be pretty yeah. complex given what you've already yeah. gone through the year prior yeah definitely and i think that's like that's a, probably an understatement i probably glossed over it a little bit there yeah. um because it was yeah definitely and and that was the reason why i went down for the same surgeon again right like you yeah. know he he's well, he, been in there before yeah he knows what he knows where to go right he's got, yeah, he's got a map exactly. in his mind Exactly, but he but he did say to me, sort of in hospital, a couple of days after the surgery, I'm not going to do this again. Like, I, you know, I can't. Your liver, your liver is, is in such a state now that I can't go in there and mess around with it for a third time. Yeah. And he also said, he also said, I'm not sure I got it all. Like, you know, like your liver is. I couldn't be sure that I got all the bits yeah. of the tumor, um, and and. Uh, just because of the state, not only from the surgery, but fulforinox really not really messes around with the liver as well, right? Yeah. So it, it, it in a bit of a in a bit of a state. Look, and the liver is is an incredible organ. Like you talk about, I talk about the pancreas being the angry organ. Liver is the friendly organ, right? Like you know, after that that first the first surgery I had, they took out two thirds of my liver, 
a couple of months later when I had that scan, it was it was back to its full volume. It had grown back to its full volume. It just blows my mind. It's fascinating, you know? Morgan. It is incredible. Absolutely. So it can take a beating. Um, but uh, but yeah, look, no, that was significant surgery. And look, to be honest, you know, so I'm, on, I'm on pancreatic enzymes, you know, on yeah. Creon and 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 you know, you're right, things aren't the same. But but really in the grand scheme of things, it's not it's really not too bad in terms of how you know, all, all my insides and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but you're right. Like sort of that's sure, the second hold, surgery. Hold on. I, I, you know, I wish we had a video vlog. You said it in this, and I have, I have been taking notes here. You just said something that's amazing. And, and I want to point this out. You just, it's not that bad in all grand scheme of things, but we just talked about, you went through a distal pancreatectomy. And then if my math is right, that was in December in 2018. Six months later, you go through the second surgery which again is pretty, pretty, it's not standardized. You're on all these Creon, you know, because of the digestive system for the audience listening at home, once they start messing around with the pancreas, uh, the your digestive system doesn't act the same as it did because the pancreas is responsible for helping digestion as is the gallbladder and that's no longer there. So you have to supplement digestion with Creon and, and other medications, which now you have to watch what you eat, right? You can't eat the way probably you used to, or you just have to be conscious of what you're eating because of your digestive system being different. But you say it w it wasn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. Where does that come from? I mean, and, and I'm not joking. I, I mean, yeah, we are joking about this, but you know, that's something that I have here. I mean, you've mentioned this a couple times, you know, that uh, just this outlook and and I just, I, I've got a term here I call the mindset. So was this something maybe that early on in life, like an experience, did you go through something traumatic early on in life that put your mind in this certain way, Jules? I, I, no, I mean, no is the answer to that, to that question, the specific question. But I think, you know, I've always been a positive person and always, you know, looked at, try to be positive about things. But I think, and I, and I think, like, you know, I probably get that from, from my, my, my parents and, and the way I was brought up and all, and all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, partic particularly with, with this, and I mentioned it, I mentioned it earlier, like I'm, I made, I made a pretty conscious decision early on to sort of, to look forward and to not look back and to not think, why did this happen to me? Because, you know, no, no good can come from that, from my point of view. Um, and sort of, I still remember driving early on before I was diagnosed, but it was pretty clear what was, what was coming, what the diagnosis was going to be. Um, I was driving to one of the medical, one of my medical appointments. And I remember thinking, I remember I was crying, thinking about what was, you know, what was coming, but then thinking that, you know, if this is what it is and this is what it's going to be, then I'm going to, I don't want to spend the rest of my time here, whatever it is moping around and feeling sorry for myself and being sad, you know, like I, I want to enjoy whatever I've got left and, 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 you know, be as positive as I can about this. And, um, so I remember saying to my, to my family at that point, you know, let's be sad now. Let's, let's deal with this now. And because it is awful, but then I, then I, then I want to be, then I want to live a life and enjoy life from this, from this point on. Um, and then I think that led to, and this 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 is this isn't isn't my term. It's actually been said said back to me when I've been talking to people about it. But I think it kind of summarises it quite well. I kind of 
I've kind of taken it on. I've taken the cancer on. Like it's, I've embraced it and I've embraced dealing with it. And, you know, I'd never, I'd never tell anyone else how to deal with a situation like this or any other sort of traumatic situation. People have to work out what works for them. But for me, that works for me. And I've made it part of my life and, it, and I've always been really open about it. I've always, I've shared my story with everyone. I've, you know, I tell people I've got pancreatic cancer, you know, like I don't, I don't hide or shy away from it. I understand why some people might, but that's just not how I, I wouldn't be able to deal with it in that way. And I think, you know, that's, that helps with the positive attitude and that helps with, you know, everything we know about mental health and all that sort of stuff as well, you know, about sort of talking about things and not holding it in and all that, all that sort of stuff. But we have a term here in Australia. Um, that I don't know if it, if it doesn't, tra- it doesn't always translate that well, but it's, it's have a crack. You've got to have a crack, you know, which means have a go, you know, like sort of you can't just sort of stay within yourself or, you know, you've got to give 100% or 110% or whatever, you know. I mean, I, was, I coached rugby in Canada for a while and always say to the guys, you just got to have a crack, you know, have a crack. And they didn't really understand what I was talking, <laughs> what I was talking about. But that's what it is, you know. It's like don't, don't leave anything behind. Don't leave anything, you know, like really give it your all. Um, I know that's a very long answer to your question, but that's sort of, that, that kind of sums up my mindset, I think. Um, and it, it then means like, so for example, I got through those surgeries and, so right now, and I'm living, and I'm not looking back. I'm living in the moment now, and I've, I'm feeling pretty good. And in those, you know, those couple, a couple of months after, I was feeling alright. And sure, I've got to take these tablets, you know, these pancreatic enzymes when I eat, and I've got to think about what I eat and whatever. But you know, compared to compared to being in hospital after having that surgery, or compared to being in hospital after having that first round of chemo, or compared to sitting in a chair for eight hours for sulforinox, it's nothing. You know, it's absolutely nothing. So, um, yeah, that's, yeah. Sorry, again, a very long-winded answer to your question. Jules, that's so powerful. I mean, just what you just summarized is just for our audience listening at home. And, and, you know, I I could say for me, just hearing that, you know, from someone who is 33 years old. Well, now, I I don't know if you've turned 34. Yeah, 34 now. Getting older all the time. Almost 35, (laughs) 35 this year. you know, at 31 years of old, 31 years of age, I would imagine, you know, and, and I guess I'm stereotyping here, here in the United States and, and probably around the world, most 31 year olds are not worried. They're probably worried about how many likes they have on social media or how many TikToks they can do uh, and how many views they can see. Quite honestly, uh, I know I'm, I'm kind of stereotyping. I mean, that's not the, the entire. Yeah, no, that's, that's, what, that's what I would have been like at that, you know, when I, when I first got sick, you know, looking at my Instagram life. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just fascinating to me that. So to go back, you have that second surgery, yeah. and that yeah. was uh, June of 19. And then you go back on the oral medication, and so since then, that's kind of been the the the, the protocol and the plan. No, lots a lots even happened since then. A lots happened since then. So, so pretty soon after that surgery, um, I had a scan which showed there had been a lot of growth on my liver. So there was there was a lot of spots on my liver. Like we were talking about in a short space of time, there was about twelve new spots on my liver. Jeez. So, and that was again sort of devastating news to see because again even though my surgeon had told me i didn't think i got it all we you know we didn't think it'd be that that bad that quickly and so that was uh probably august or so, i think it was about august last year august 2019 and so at that point 
um, I go back to the, the other oncologist I mentioned before, who was the clinical trial oncologist. And he says, I've got a targeted therapy trial for you. It's coming. It's starting soon. And so that's all guns are blazing for, towards that, but we don't know when it's going to start. So we need to do something in the meantime. Um, and he had an immunotherapy trial. So I go on and he's, and he, we, we didn't, we didn't have a lot, hold out a lot of hope, but we thought we'll give it a go. And uh, actually been some, some pancreatic cancer patients that actually had some good response to this drug. So we thought we'll give it, a, we'll give it a crack. Um, so I go on that for a couple of months late last year. Um, and that didn't work. So I had a, had a scan sort of late, late last year and that showed that again, there'd been a bit of, a bit of growth. And so then I go on another form of chemo because the trial, like the, the targeted therapy trial hasn't started yet. Um, and so I went on gemabraxane, so a combination of gemcitabine and braxane. Um, and that, again, so that compared to fulforinox was an absolute walk in the park. Like, <laughs> you know, I'd go, in, I'd go in for a couple of hours and I'd, I'd still work, I'd still be able, still able to work. You know, yeah. I worked three, three days a week for sort of most of late last year and still doing this chemo and, feeling good, like really hardly any side effects at all. Um, and then uh, on Boxing Day, got really sick uh, with fevers and, and, and sort of stomach cramps and diarrhea and things and um, ended up in hospital in early January uh, with, again, with fevers and that sort of stuff. But that had a scan just before I went to hospital actually. And that showed that the chemo was working. So the, the, the couple of big tumors on my liver were shrinking. So that was really good news. I was like thinking, all right, excellent. And at the same time, I'm on the, I've been accepted on this, this new trial, the targeted therapy trial as well, which is targeting my genetic mutation. So we know that when I, when I need that, I can get on it. But then I end up in hospital. Um, can't work out why I'm in hospital. Sort of, you know, they smack me with a whole bunch of antibiotics for a week and, doesn't really make me feel any better, so it can't be an infection. And so they think, well, maybe even though we've had a good response from those those large tumors, maybe there's you know maybe there's some other action happening elsewhere. So I had a PET scan at that point, and that showed there there looked like there'd been some activity elsewhere in the liver, um, which means the chemo, while it was working in one hand, probably not working as well as it could be. Mm-hmm. So with with my oncologist, my oncologist and my surgeon, um, Murdad, we sort of work out. Well, it's probably given this clinical trials available with this targeted therapy. Let's let's jump on that at this point. It's probably the right thing to do. We can always come back to chemo. Um, and literally three weeks ago, I started this this clinical trial, this targeted therapy trial. So I've been on on the um, on the the the, 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 the tablets that are targeting the genetic mutation for three weeks. Um, and it's the best I've felt in a long time in just that sort of short intervening period. I haven't had any fevers, which I was getting at least once a week before starting that drug. Um, just in a short time of taking this drug, all my blood markers that were high, so my C-reactive protein was ridiculously high, LDH was high, my platelets were high, all these things were really high the week before starting this drug. Have all come back into normal range just within a couple of weeks. So, um, my oncologist is extremely excited. I had to calm him down because I sort of, <laughs> I, sort of I, I try and take the approach of whatever whatever news I receive, whether it be good or bad. I try and just say, well, this is just information, you know. Like I try not to get too excited about a good scan 
or good result. I try to get not too down about a bad result and just think, well, this is just information now that we act on and we do, you know, what are we doing next? Um, but it's like, you know, I, I sort of got him to say, I think he said, well, can I tell you, you're at least not deteriorating. You're not getting any worse. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. So yeah, good, good early signs, but things can, things can change quickly. And, um, but, but yeah, so that's, that's where I am now. So yeah, that's, that's my story. Amazing. You know, you just said something and, and we've had a lot of survivors on our podcast and, um, a gentleman who was on our podcast, someone I got to know personally. And what you just said was so profound, Jules, and, and hopefully our, our audience listening at home, if they've listened to the podcast before, and especially particularly this podcast, will know what I, where I'm going to go. But you said it's just information. And that is so profound and so powerful because that's what it is. And I, I think we have, we, we get this paralysis analysis, I guess is what I'll call it, right? We get these, this information and, and we go into paralysis almost. But to, to have that mindset, I go back to this again for that question that I asked you and to have that thought that this is just information. This is all it is. It doesn't, do anything other than that it's information and how you react to it and, and the plan that you put together is, is really how really the important stuff versus the information of someone telling you what this is is so yep. powerful yeah so, look and it's it, i don't want to pretend it's easy either right like, no, <laughs> so no, none of i say is. it i say it like it's just this thing you can you can do you have this mindset and it's not always easy and sometimes i need to remind myself that a lot but but and and you just said sort of you know something that's that really connected with me too. It's sort of it's about the information that then you create a plan with, and and the only times I've been really worried or stressed about the situation really has been when I haven't had a plan. You know, there's a couple of periods there where we've been working out well, what do we do next, and so you know, for example, for you know, in that period between having that sort of the the before I had my first surgery, there was a, you know a couple of months of where we didn't really know what we were doing, and that stressed me out. You know, and, you know, we, I need to be doing something. And then early this year, you know, I went sort of eight weeks without any, any treatment, you know, from boxing day through to a couple of weeks ago. Um, because I couldn't have any, before starting a clinical trial, you need to have a washout period, you know, so to make sure it's just the, just the new, the new drugs in your system so they can work out what's, what, what the response they have. And so I guess even though I had a plan then, so that period of doing nothing was, was sort of stressed me out and made, and made me anxious. But yeah, having the having the plan is has always been been really important. But yeah, I don't I don't want to pretend like I'm some robot and just sort of you know I just I just analyze this information and process it and move on to the next thing. Like it's it is emotional and you've got to be emotional and you and you've got to you've got to let yourself feel things too. But I think it's important then to sort of ground yourself and remind yourself about the bigger picture. I suppose. It's powerful, and, and I think it's something that I I've noticed in our conversation. And you talk about multiple doctors, but all the doctors that you've talked about, you have had, at least from my perspective, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, Jules, yeah. like extreme confidence in whatever was told or whatever the plan was, I should say. 
you know, from yeah. the doctors, whether it's been your GI specialist, uh, you know, or GP back in Brisbane to, you know, you mentioned the admiration and the confidence that you had, you know, the surgeon in Melbourne. Yep. You know, which I think is important. And, and this is a powerful lesson, I think, for our audience listening at home, and especially if there's families that are going through this. And I've always said, like, you've got to have 100% faith in your doctor. I mean, there's some amazing doctors in the world, you know, fighting all sorts of diseases, but in particular in pancreatic cancer, and, and some that are, are great that people connect with because of their personalities. And I say that some of them don't have a personality. And if that's okay for that patient that they, they're okay yeah. with that. Like they have a hundred percent faith, regardless if the guy says, good morning, how are you? What, how was your weekend? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or it just comes in and is somewhat robotic. Uh, I think that's personal preference, but I think that's really the key is like, you have to, the patient has to be, has to have that connection with the clinician. I, I, I have a personal thing. I think clinicians should have some human side to it. Right. I always, yell at clinicians when I say, do you, you know, do you get to know your patients? I think that's important. Yeah. But yeah. for some people it's not yeah. important. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And look, and you're exactly right. And I guess, I don't know, use that word lucky again. I feel lucky that I've had these really great, great clinicians, um, great medical professionals. Uh, and I don't know if that is luck or, or, or whatever, but you know, my, my oncologist, my first oncologist, uh, it was amazing. And uh, so I remember, maybe the second or third time, you know, sitting in the, in, in the, in the chemo chair and, you know, I'd go in with him, you know, I'd go in with his list of questions each time, particularly early on, you know, his list of random list of questions from, you know, can I take turmeric to, oh, I read about this, I read about this drug or I read about this thing or whatever. And he would take his, always just take time to answer my questions, you know, and always give me whatever time I needed. And that was an amazing thing. Like he had this perfect combination of, 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 uh, of being, of knowing what he was talking about, but also connecting with you personally, but not too much, not being too emotive, you know, you know, like it's that combination of, of emotion and, and, and treating, I suppose, you know, giving, giving you what, you, you know, telling you what you needed to do or whatever. But I still remember sort of going through this list of questions in the second or third time at chemo. And my dad was with me, you know, in the, in the, you know, just sitting with me through chemo and, you know, the doctor walked off and dad just looked, turned to me and said, he really knows his shit. <laughs> you know, it was just like, <laughs> you know, it was just that, you know, and, and that's exactly summarize him up, you know, summarize him perfectly, you know, he just, he, <laughs> oh, that's great. And, was, and so that kind of thing, you know, that kind of thing really does give you, give you confidence, you know, the fact yeah. that you can run off these ridiculous list of questions and he just gives you these honest answers. Um, and then sort of, yeah, but, you, but the other thing I think that is important for me has been, this team that I've built up over time too, you know, like I've, I've now got these two oncologists. I've got this amazing surgeon. I've got my GP who is, who, who is really good. I've got my, I've got an incredible exercise physiologist who she, she specializes in cancer exercise physiology. So she's doing her PhD in exercise and cancer and the effect of exercise on cancer, which I could, I could, I could probably again talk about for an hour. Um, you know, the, the importance of cancer patients exercising and how important that's been for me. Um, you know, I've built up this team now and, you know, that I can test things with. And, you know, so I say, you know, when, when my oncologist says we should do this immunotherapy or we should do this targeted therapy, I'm, all right, great. Then I go talk to my surgeon and said, this is what they, they, they reckon. What do you think? And he's like, yep. Or now, nah, you know, so to have that, I think that's really important too, is, is, is you absolutely have confidence in, 
and have a have a medical professional that you can trust and stuff, but don't feel like you can't test that and 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 talk to a range of people to make sure that that is the right thing that's happening. And even that pancreatic cancer specialist who who I mentioned, you know, who said find someone to cut it out, and these are the three people to do it in Australia. Um, I still I'm still in email contact with her, so I'll check in with her to say, you know, this is what's happening with me. This is what we're proposing. What do you think? You know, and so that gives me confidence that I'm that I'm heading in the right direction, being able to check with these with this great great range of, of professionals that are, my my team that I've, that I've built up over time. It's powerful. You just mentioned something, and I've got a couple of questions here. Um, you mentioned the exercise. Is there anything else? And you mentioned the turmeric before. Is there anything else that you're doing from a holistic or lifestyle standpoint? that you feel for you is making a big difference. And we've had, and I'll just back up for a second. We've had people on the podcast and I've always said this podcast is a hundred percent authentic. We don't hold back, whether it's faith, religion, um, you know, certain treatments. We've had people that have, uh, you know, smoked marijuana to, to get through this or use CBD oils. Um, you know, the, the purpose of this is to share what's working for you. Um, you know, and, and I'd love to hear if you are doing anything beyond the traditional realm of, you know, chemotherapy or anything that's, I guess we would quote unquote, what air quotes call traditional medicine. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And um, I've sort of my, my approach to early, really early on, again, I read a book called Anti-Cancer. I'm not sure if you're familiar, familiar yep, with it. I've heard it before. Yeah, but it, yeah, and it's, it's 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 really worth a read. So I, I can't remember the, but it was a French, it's a French psychiatrist, French American psychiatrist um, who, who wrote it, and incredible book for anyone who hasn't read it, and uh, um, strongly recommend, particularly any any, um, any any patients and survivors out there to read it. But he he says in his book you know, up front that anyone who's just relying on Western medicine is crazy. Anyone who's just relying on holistic, you know, non-Western medicine or traditional medicine, whatever, is crazy. You know, like you need to do, you need the best of both worlds. Um, and I thought that was really powerful. And he sort of tells a story in his book about, you know, going. I think it was seeing, you know, the Buddhists in Nepal or something. I probably got that wrong, but you know, let's run with it because it sounds good. <laughs> it sounds good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they said, you know, when I've got, you know, when I've got the flu, I go down the road to the Indian, the hospital run by, you know, the Indian medical professionals. When I've got a sore back or a chronic condition, I go up the other end of the road and see the Buddhist, you know, medical practitioners. Mm-hmm. You know, so you sort of you know, the best of both worlds, and, I, and I'm an absolute strong believer in that. Um, and so I've sort of, you know, probably not as much as I could to be honest, explored sort of more holistic stuff. But um, but certainly I take um, a whole bunch of supplements. So sort of, you know, who knows if they work or not. But but it's worth, worth a crack. So I sort of take. Take turmeric uh, daily. Take vitamin B daily. Vitamin vitamin B has been linked to helping with peripheral neuropathy, which is a side effect of of fulforinox, not of the other platinum-based chemotherapies. Um, I I take um, a random one that I'm, I'm taking in my smoothies. When I have smoothies is mangosteen, which which apparently has some links to it's a it's an Asian fruit that has links to some benefits to pancreatic cancer. Um, but again, who, who knows this sort of stuff, right? But I think it's as long as it's not doing any damage, it's it's worth a go, um, but um, diet and exercise, to be honest, have been have been the big things. And diet for me has just been essentially trying to follow what's loosely like a Mediterranean diet, which is which is you know limiting red meat, trying to eat as as many fruit and vegetables as you can, 
good fats, you know, like avocado and olive oils and fish and that sort of stuff. Um, so just really trying to sort of limit red meat to once a week on the, you know, or twice a week on the weekend and, and Hey, found that I've enjoyed it a lot more when I, when I do that and have it on the weekends and just sort of, you know, during the week, you know, have chicken or vegetables or fish or whatever. And, it means every now and then my wife just says, I just need a steak, you know, and she'll, <laughs> she'll just have a steak while I'm having a piece of salmon or something, but well, that's okay. Um, but then exercise has been, has been so important. And, you know, I mean, we mentioned earlier that sort of, you know, when I got sick, I was, I was active, but, but before that, you know, I was never that, I was, wasn't really that active. Like I played footy, but you know, I was, before I got, before I got sick, I was, you know, not, massive but I was a little bit overweight you know I was carrying a bit too much weight and I was running every now and then but I wasn't I wouldn't have said I was a really fit and active person I'd, I would I'd probably say that I wasn't really doing enough exercise um even though I was only 30 or whatever but now you know I, I'm at the gym two or three times a week you know, I've just started running again running running three times a week and um it it's really important for me mentally, I think almost as much as physically, um, to be out there doing, doing that sort of stuff, just being outside and being active. Like you just feel so much better doing it. And then for the exercise, you know, it's called, my, my oncologist actually said, it's not called the poor man's immunotherapy for nothing, you know? And I think that, that summarizes it really well. And, and the evidence is just so strong and people don't realize how strong the evidence is for exercise and cancer. Like cancer patients who exercise enough, and I focus on that word enough, do enough exercise and the right types of exercise, uh, you know, experience less side effects in their treatment, which means you can do more treatment, which means you're more likely to, to, to live for longer, which means, you know, you're more likely to maybe fear cancer not to recur. You know, and that's, there's really strong evidence for that. It's not just, you know, a little bit of stuff here or there. It's strong evidence has been established in, you know, by proper research, right? And then, but we also know that, that, that not enough cancer patients do enough exercise. Like here in Australia, it's like one in 10 cancer patients exercise enough. And that number is not surprising because, you know, if you're a middle-aged woman getting diagnosed with breast cancer, who hasn't exercised in 20 years, you're hardly going to go out and take a you know, gym membership once you've been the first time you've been diagnosed, right? Um, but it's, it isn't that hard to do the right amount of exercise. Like all you need to do is get your heart rate up a little bit, you know, all you need to do is do a couple of strength-based exercises, which you can do in your living room. You can do some squats or whatever, you know, And but the key is, is, is finding, like anything, right? Like it needs to be seen as another arm of treatment. So you go to your oncologist to get, your chemotherapy, you go to your doctors to get prescribed medicine, you need to go see you know, qualified exercise physiologists who know what they're talking about and who know what you're experiencing and going, you know, when you're going through treatment, you can how do you how can you exercise when you're going through treatment, when you're feeling terrible, when you're immunosuppressed and need to have stuff wiped down, or need to be in an environment that's safe and all that kind of thing. And I'm lucky that I've found one of the only ones in Brisbane, you know, let alone anywhere else who, who is an expert in, in cancer and exercise, but it's sort of a growing field, I think. But there's a real challenge, I think, with the health system to embrace these these holistic things, right? Like, I mean, exercise shouldn't be seen as traditional. It should be seen as as a core part of treatment, right? And I think it will be eventually, but it's not not quite there yet. Um, and I've actually been been working with with Morgan, my exercise physiologist, to try and to try and um, you know make this the stuff she does more accessible to more more cancer patients and you talk to oncologists and you talk to 
health bureaucrats and they say, look, we agree, we get it, we know how strong the evidence is, the system's just behind and you need to catch up. And I think that's the case, like that's the case for genetic testing too, right? That's the case for a lot of stuff where there's strong evidence now and the system just needs to catch up. Well, I think what you just said is so powerful because you're living proof and there is data. There's a lot of data on this that exercise yep. does matter for all cancers, not just pancreatic cancer, but all cancers. And we know this. I mean, we know this here in the States. And, and I can say this. I'm not a registered expert. I'm, I, I don't have uh, the hard data, you know, for but for people that we've talked to on the podcast and we've had probably the most pancreatic cancer survivors of, of any podcast on podcasts here. Yep. There's a striking correlation to quality of life with those who work out. And yep. I think for the audience listening at home, and if someone is battling, and I think you said something that is really powerful, Jules, here, take a step back in the conversation about the lady, you know, who had breast cancer and, you know, they haven't worked out in 10 years or, you know, and there's people that, you know, life changes, people have families, but, you know, they, 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 whatever, for work reasons, you know, they stop yep. their, their current lifestyle to focus on that, the, the or their previous lifestyle of, of being fit and healthy to you know the current lifestyle and and i i think we all have to pause here we're not talking about like hey you don't need to go out and run marathons you know we do a lot of active stuff here at project purple with running marathons and fitness and stuff like that we're not talking you know people who are fighting cancer don't need to go out and do these extreme things but they just need to incorporate some sort of exercise and i think what you said like even doing squats in your 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 living room or you know just we've had people that they just continue to do practice yoga you know and yep. and do stretching and again the intensity is not the same but that bit of activity to move the body to to flush you know fluids you know by stretching and by exercising to get blood running through the system and and being able to hydrate is so critical and, and yeah absolutely it's amazing but you know so i i think that is happening similar to like you said with the genetics i know there's there's people around the country here that have programs and and clearly going to a facility that you know does run a risk because of the immune systems of people who are fighting pancreatic cancer and all cancers in general when you're on treatment your immune system's completely out of whack so you have to be very cautious about you know being in a public setting regardless whether it's a gym or even a movie theater for for right now what's happening across the, the globe you know with this covid 19 um you know illness spreading around so rapidly so we just have to, you just have to be a lot more careful but there is data that backs up that exercise is key so uh, that's so powerful yeah and i think i think the other thing too is and you, know, you hit the nail on the head with sort of just doing whatever you can yeah. and i remember sort of being, being in you know even a couple of days after you know for forinox treatment just saying i'm going outside today i'm going to walk down the stairs yeah. i'm going to go outside you know and that is so powerful mentally and then it's like all right well tomorrow i'm going to walk around the block you know whatever it is you know today i'm going to do I will do five minutes of stretches or, or whatever it is, you know. So I think just doing something and then the next day I'm going to do a little bit more. You know, I think it's really, you know, that really helped me. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a really sort of, I'm not going to say it's easy because none of that's easy. Nothing's easy no. when you're going through. But achievable. Maybe that's guys achievable. Yeah, it's sort achievable. of an achievable yeah. way yeah. Yeah, to move. And, and it's just, you just feel, you do feel better mentally and physically. You really do it's so powerful and it's so fascinating the effects that exercise can have on you on a mental 
you know, we know physically, like, right, you know, there, there's defined benefits, but from a mental aspect, it's just fascinating to me and how that happens. I've got two more questions for you here, Jules. And yep. one of them's combined. And I, I, I know from following you on social media, your friends have been a big impact yeah. in your life. And so I want to talk about that and, and also combine that in social media, because I know, I think your friends have set up a social media page. Um, you guys yep. have t-shirts and I think that came yep. uh, and correct me if I'm wrong from, uh, getting involved with Pancare and doing the walks there in Australia and, and, you know, raising awareness there. I know you mentioned, you know, being able to embrace it and not hiding from it and speaking about yep. it, but there's, a, there's, a, you're doing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And look, and that, and that was, I guess that's part of the, yeah, taking on having a crack, having a crack sort of stuff. And, and I suppose what I didn't talk about either was that, you know, when I first got diagnosed, it was like, you know, what the hell's the pancreas, let alone what's, you know, what's pancreatic cancer. Yeah. But then you read about it and you're just like, Oh, like it's so appalling. The stats are so appalling. Appalling is the word, right. You know, that, that less than 10% of people make it for five years after diagnosis is just in this day and age is not acceptable when you see that, you know, breast cancer and prostate cancer and these other high profile cancers are up around the 90% of people live for five years after diagnosis, less than 10%. It's just not good enough. And so that was why really I decided to sort of say, look, I'll just, I've got to, I've got to, you know, do something here to help, to help with this, however small, um, try and get the word out. And, um, and yeah. And so, you know, my friends, my, I have an incredible friendship group and, um, I've got, I've got behind that. And, um, so, you know, last year, uh, so Pancare here do a walk, do walk, what they call a walk for hope. And they do it around sort of every big city in, in, in Australia. And they do one, um, just down the road on the Gold Coast here last year. This is the first time in Queensland. And I, would you believe it was actually the day of my surgery in June last year. So the day I had, I had the second surgery was the day of the walk here. And uh, apparently, sort of, you know, a good chunk of the people at that walk were, were my friends and family, like a really large proportion, not about a large proportion, but a good chunk. And um, and so that was that was amazing. That was amazing, sort of, to hear that and see the photos. Um, and sort of the people people coming, you know, pulling pulling behind, you know, me and the cause and everything. It was just incredible. And then. At my rugby club, we did we did a fundraiser last year, and you know, again, sort of raised something like fifteen thousand dollars for Pancare just on a day. Wow! Um, and you know, my wife running around organising the raffle, all sorts of stuff. This, you know, working you know for hours on end, let alone the, you know, the prep and all that sort of stuff, and had all these sort of helpers and you know, one of my best mates sort of organised the whole day. But you know, just just incredible. Um, but then uh, late last year. Um, I was my, one of my good friends just had a, had a baby and we just decided to go meet them um, down by a park, just by our, our, our home and with some other friends. So I thought, you know, my wife and I going down just to meet a couple of friends and sort of see all these people, you know, wearing these purple shirts. And I was like, oh, that's, that's weird. Why are these people in these purple shirts? And actually there was like an orienteering club on. I was like, look at all these orienteers. Why are they all in this? Look at all, I can't believe how many orienteers, orienteering people are down here in this park. What a random thing. But then as I got closer, I realized they were all wearing, first of all, I knew all these people and they were all wearing these purple t-shirts that said, how good is Jules? And 
there was, you know, sort of, I don't know, maybe 30, 50 of my sort of closest friends all there in these, in these t-shirts. And so one of my friends and one of my really good mates and his wife, um, had organized these shirts and sold them, um, to, to everyone and with all the proceeds going to Pancare. Um, and sort of what started off as it's an incredible surprise that I'm still not over and I'll probably, probably never get over to, for that to happen. It was just this incredible, incredible moment. Um, but then talking to him sort of later about these, about these t-shirts and sort of it started off as this small thing, you know, let's just get, I don't know, we'll get, you know, we'll get a few. And for context, I had a shirt, one of my other mates, one of my other good mates gave me this t-shirt. I, I've always said, you know, I don't know, how, how good is, how good is life or how good is this CD or how good is this meal or whatever? I've kind of just been one of these things I've said. And so like 10 years ago, when I, one of my mates, when, when I moved overseas for a bit, one of my mates gave me this shirt that said, how good is Jules, you know, on this this yellow t-shirt that just said, how good is Jules? So they thought they'd recreate this t-shirt and everyone, everyone would wear it. Um, but it started off as being, yeah, let's just sort of get it for these, you know, for our sort of closest mates. But then sort of, you know, demand went a bit crazy. Everyone, everyone wanted one. And they were literally, he was literally sort of taking orders and ordered, got them shipped to his like house and had to dish out all these, all these t-shirts to people. So it awesome. sort of just got a bit out of hand. Um, and anyway, but everyone, everyone, you know, we put up some photos on social media. And then there was sort of like, and this is just sort of my, you know, I guess my, you know, as I said, sort of 40 to 50 sort of closest friends, but it didn't include, you know, my, you know, I don't know, my friends from uni or my friends from work, my, my wife's good friends, uh, you know, my friends from the gym or whatever, you know, um, and all of a sudden everyone was like, we want one of these, we want one of these t-shirts. So we, we made them, made them all widely available. And so we just sort of, and then one of my other, one of my um, other friends, she runs a, um, I should give a, give a shout out. She runs a charity called Dangerous Females at Dangerous Females on Instagram, which is a domestic and family violence charity, which is this incredible thing. And that's kind of the platform we've, we've adopted sort of, you know, from, you know, from having this social media presence and these, and these products that, that where all the, all the money goes to these charities. And so she was like, you've got to start up an Instagram. You've got to do, you know, you've got to do all these things. I was actually, I was on her podcast a few weeks ago. The social club is her podcast talking about stuff as well. And, um, anyway, so yeah, it's just become this, this thing, which I still feel a bit weird about having this, how good is Jules stuff everywhere, <laughs> but I need to kind of, kind of get over that for, for the cause. Um, and yeah, Pancare got behind it. A few of the Pancare people have bought a shirt and yeah. So it's, it's, it's this cool thing that just started from, yeah, my, my mates wanting to do something, do something cool. Um, and, and my wife's name's Ali. And that's the, the next thing we said, we need, we really need a, how good is Ali one? So we might do a, you know, get a, get a cap or something. We'll have one, a limited edition t-shirt on the back that says, how good is Ali? Cause you know, she's been phenomenal throughout this process of course as well. And I would never have been able to have all the, the positive mindset and the strong, the strong outlook that I've, that we've talked about here, I suppose, without her and without her support. So, so yeah, so but yeah. Anyway, that's that's the story of the of the how good is Jules of the how good is Jules uh, Instagram and t-shirts. That's so amazing. I mean, I think you know one of the things we bring up often here with survivors is like what what can friends do for you know people battling? Because I think as a caregiver, we always kind of wonder you know sitting on the periphery on the outside, like what should we do? And to know that your friends, you know, if you think about this, have started helping to raise awareness, you know, and now, you know, you've got social media, you've got other people throughout the country wearing these shirts. 
all in an effort to raise awareness is just really phenomenal and, and really kind of special. You know, I, I, that's how I see it, you know, and, and as an outsider here and, and it's just really, really special. And, and, you know, for audience listening at home, I mean, that's a really, really fascinating idea. And, you know, maybe it could be replicated elsewhere throughout the world. And, and, you know, some, something as simple as just, you know, raising, helping to raise awareness for someone who is going through pancreatic cancer and the impact, like you, you said, your friends is just really special. It's just really powerful. Yeah. And it's, look, it, it's next level, right? That kind of thing. Like it really is because I mean, what people can, you know, what people can do from my experience, you know, some of the most helpful things have been just even saying, Hey, you're going checking in, you know, not being yeah. a stranger, keeping in touch, popping over with a meal that you can put in the freezer, you know, that you can, you can, when you're in hospital and you know, you, 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 you know, you're both spending all the time in hospital or through treatment or whatever, or medical appointments or whatever, something you can just have in the freezer. You don't have to worry about cooking or, whatever those little things are really powerful too but this kind of thing is just it has been just been next level you know just and it was all about you know just to said let's put a smile on ali and jules's face you know like let's do something that they'll get a kick out of and then it, as well as that it's it's yeah it's it's building this this awareness raising raising thing which is so important so it is just yeah absolutely incredible um and yeah everyone should get on and follow at how good is jules on instagram and buy a t-shirt if you want one or a cap well, we're going to share that information here in a second. Um, I, I got a question that just popped up. And I know we, we talked a little bit about genetics. You mentioned your dad. You've mentioned Allie, support that their family has given to you. In terms of your family, I mean, have you had a history of, like, in the family of, of cancer or anything, Jules? Not really, no. I mean, yeah, no is the short answer to that question. Um uh, and that was one of the things when I, when I had that genetic testing done, um, we went, you know, one of the things I did was run through a family, a family tree with them. Yeah. Um, it was actually, it was funny. I had to get into Sydney for this, for this stuff. And my dad happened to be in Sydney for work. So he came along with me for the appointment and it was probably the worst two people in our family to be trying to do a family <laughs> tree. Like, we just kept, kept like looking, looking at each other going like, uh, <laughs> but, um, but no, no is the short answer. Um, having said that, my, my aunt, so my non-biological aunt, she actually passed away from, from pancreatic cancer. Um, but, but bloodline um, wasn't related some, though. Correct. Yeah, yeah. correct. So, um, so, so no, yeah, no is the short answer, not really a history of cancer or any of that, any of that sort of stuff as well. But, um, but weirdly like sort of, you know, pancreatic cancer had, had touched me and still continues to touch me. Like my, my aunt, um, my, a really dear colleague of mine at work, passed away while I was sick, but before I'd been diagnosed, I would have, I would have been sitting at his funeral with pancreatic cancer. He died of pancreatic cancer. I would have been sitting at his funeral with pancreatic cancer, not knowing I had it, um, which is just ridiculous to think, to look back on. One of my, one of my other good mates, mums, uh, she passed away from pancreatic cancer. One of my other good mates, mothers has just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Like it's just it, yeah, ridiculous. The fact, and, and that sort of goes with, it's scary, right? But that sort of goes with the stats and what everyone's saying yeah. is that pancreatic cancer is it's it's coming. People need to pay attention to it. The numbers are coming, like it's killing more and more people. More and more people are getting diagnosed. More and more people are dying. We need to give it more attention. Otherwise, it's gonna it's really gonna start to start to have a burden on society. I mean, it already is, but the burden's gonna be felt more acutely. It's just yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely. Sorry again. Yeah, no is the short answer to your your original question. So my, my last question here, 
jewels for you. And then we're gonna we're gonna give our audience some information which is gonna be important and how they can connect with you. Yep. And this is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong answer, but it's personal to you. How do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition? I'm, I'm lucky that I listened to a few of your podcasts. I had a bit of a... Because <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard you ask that to Helen, I was like, oh my God, what a question you put on the... Put on the I might have to cha- <laughs> now that I know that, I might have to change that up a little bit. We might have to come up with a better closer. But I cheated. I cheated, didn't I? But um, it doesn't make it any easier to answer, to be honest. <laughs> but I've thought about it, and I think... I probably I don't know if I have a good answer, but to me... It sort of links to what I was just saying. Like it's it's the next big challenge for me, a health challenge, you know, or, or a challenge. It's the next challenge that needs attention because it just doesn't get it doesn't get enough attention. It doesn't get enough attention. Not enough people know about it. Not enough being done about it, um, and that needs to change because otherwise, more and more people will be diagnosed, and more and more people will die, and that's just not acceptable. Um, and you know, you look as I, as I said before. If you look at the stats around breast cancer and the stats around prostate cancer and bowel cancer, just to, to pick a few random ones that, that people know about and that get attention, they're phenomenally better than pancreatic cancer. And there's a reason for that. It's because they've had awareness and attention. They haven't always been like that. They've improved because of the awareness and attention that has been given to them. So that's the roadmap for pancreatic cancer. Is you got to raise awareness, then then from that awareness comes attention, and from that attention comes focus and resources, and then the improvement will come. It will come because that's it has happened everywhere else. It's happened everywhere else in, in medicine and in other problems that society faces. It just needs the resources, the intention focused on it, and then we'll see some change. But it's it hasn't happened, and it's not good enough. I agree with you 140% because you are spot on, Jules. I mean, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And and I think this is the power of this podcast because I think we, we are using a medium to hopefully raise awareness, not just for us, but globally, you know, with this, this challenge. And, you know, clearly we've had guests from all around the world now on this podcast, and I hope that we are doing that. And so I, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate all the information. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I, I, I've got some closing remarks. And before we do that, um, for our audience listening at home, if they've heard something here inspired by what you've said in this podcast, where is the best way for someone to connect with you where they can find out more about Jules and follow your story? Um, so with that, where's the best way, Jules? Yeah, on, on Instagram would definitely be the easiest. And it's at, at how good is Jules. So H-O-W-G-O-D-I-S-J-U-L-E-S. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the best way to connect. And yeah, I'm happy to receive anyone or anything. So yeah, feel, feel, free, feel free to reach out on there. Always happy to, to talk and, and meet new people and, and help in any way I can. Awesome. Well, Jules, I, I've taken a lot of notes here. And, and I mean, I got to tell you, I'm going to say this first. Listening to hear you tell your story, 
and your mindset and your attitude. I I, I want to go have a beer with you. Quite frankly, I, I wish you were closer. I would say, let's, make it happen. let's go, let's go to the closest bar and let's have a beer, uh, because a, you deserve it. And B, uh, you're just, your personality here, man, is just uh, electric, man. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share with our audience and share with the world, your story and, and two notes that I'll, that I'll leave our audience with, you know, I, I wrote this early on. And I think you may have mentioned it, but you're literally rewriting the textbook on this and you have that mindset and the things you're doing. And thank you for having the courage to do that. And you're saying of, you gotta have a crack. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe you said that, you know, the, your, your slogan is just so powerful. So thank you again for allowing me to interview you and allowing us to tell your story because this has been an amazing podcast and uh keep doing what you're doing jules no thank you thanks I, I really really appreciate that and i really really do appreciate the opportunity to to share my story and and to talk about you know pancreatic cancer and, and how important it is to raise awareness and and to help project purple go global get the get the, get the aussie <laughs> chapter get the aussie <laughs> chapter going and hopefully we can hopefully we can make that we can make that beer happen well, we'll see. We'll see where that takes us. As we say here on the Project Purple Podcast, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, please share, follow us on where you listen to podcasts, and thanks for listening. Beep, beep.